Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 10, 1886 Tour of England, Not So Great Scott. Following the disputes and disrepute of the 1884-85 season, particularly around the selection of the teams, the South Australian Cricket Association proposed that future tours of England would be selected and managed by the three main associations, South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. After much debate amongst the local clubs, the Victorian Cricket Association agreed to support the idea, but only on the condition that New South Wales also agreed. However, New South Wales was not interested in joining the venture. Their refusal would mean it would be another seven years before the first centralised organisational structure for Australian cricket would be established. Into the breach strode the Melbourne Cricket Club. The Melbourne Club had established good relations with the English players of the 1884-85 tour by providing the full gate takings to the tourists for the fifth test. Despite that match not making the money expected, the goodwill generated by the gesture meant that they were in prime position to organise the next tour of England. They were of the belief that they could leverage a successful tour into becoming the most powerful club in Australia and the counterpart to the Marleybone Cricket Club. The Melbourne club was further encouraged by the support of some of the most important names in English cricket, including Lord Harris and Ivo Bly. They were of the opinion that, after the trouble caused by the rapaciousness of the 1884 Australians, that a team with the club's backing would be better received in England than a private venture. In order to further ingratiate themselves with the English establishment, they determined to only select players who were considered to be of amateur status. This higher-minded idea would cause issues with the strength of the touring party. This decision meant that experienced tourists Murdoch, Bannerman and McDonnell would not be considered for the tour. Murdoch could not be persuaded to leave his fledgling legal practice. It would be difficult to calculate whether his quality batting or adroit leadership would be missed more by the tourists. Bannerman was employed as a cricket coach and therefore didn't qualify for amateur status. McDonnell, a teacher, was also snubbed, with the club making no effort to secure his pay and seniority from the Victorian Education Department in order to allow him to make the tour. Other past tourists, such as Horan, Boyle and Massey, were unavailable. There was still quality left to build a side, with all but one player having test experience. Spofford and Palmer, both key bowlers in Australia's past success in England, were selected. So too were Blackham, Giffen and Bonner, while Jarvis, Jones and Garrett toured again for the first time since 1882. They were joined by newcomers William Bruce, John Trumbull and Edward Evans, as well as John McIlwraith, the Victorian batsman who was the only player yet to make their test debut, but he distinguished himself by scoring 133 against New South Wales the previous Australian season. Chosen to lead them was Tup Scott, a training doctor who had excelled in England in, on the 1884 tour, but had big shoes to fill as the first touring captain since Murdoch. Henry James Herbert Scott was born on Boxing Day 1858 in Turak, Victoria. A product of Wesley College, Scott would play for the St Kilda Cricket Club before making his Victorian debut as a 20-year-old. He took 6-33 with his medium pace in that match, but it would be as a batsman he would earn his test spot, with the century against New South Wales getting him selection for the 1884 tour. There he would excel, with a 75 in the second test, followed by a main century in the third, demonstrating his quality. He would also get his nickname of Tup for his fondness for London's open-top buses, which cost a tuppence to ride. The dispute between Murdoch's Australians and the Cricket Associations cost him most of the following season, but he returned the next year to score a century against New South Wales, locking in his spot for the 1886 tour. He was chosen as captain, despite never having captained Victoria, and was expected to bring together an experienced but jaded side. Warm-up match in Adelaide saw the Australians draw a match against a local 15 before the team would depart for England. They would depart in two groups, with the first leaving late March, whilst the rest would depart two weeks later in April. This early split did not bode well for the Australians, as the tour would be beset by squabbles and disputes between the players that Scott would have to adjudicate. The two parties would combine in Italy before making their final trek to England, arriving in early May. Ten days after arrival, they would play their first match, the now customary game against Lord Sheffield's eleven. Sheffield's side was basically test strength, including nine players who already played test matches, such as W.G. Grace, Shrewsbury, Ulyett and William Barnes, as well as another who would go on to play test cricket in the future. 
The rain-affected game, where the highest innings was 105, saw the home side win by eight wickets, with Barnes taking 10 for the match. It would take until the fifth game of the tour before the Australians finally won, beating Oxford University by 25 runs, with Spothers taking 15 for the match. The wet summer was having an impact, with some games washed out, whilst others rarely saw innings of over 100. Gibson's 54 in the third match of the tour against Surrey would be the only individual score of a half century or more for the Australians until Jones managed to pass that mark against Lancashire in the 10th match. That match was highlighted by Giffen's incredible match figures of 16 for 65, taking eight wickets in each innings. Giffen had given sign of what was to come in a first-class match he played for South Australia against Victoria just prior to the tour, where he had taken 17 wickets and scored over 100 runs in the game. Of a Surrey tour, Giffen would be the only one of the Australians who would end up departing England with his reputation enhanced. It was a good thing for the Australians that Giffen was performing so well, as the rest of the bowlers were struggling. Spotheth had started the tour well, but in the seventh match of the tour against the gentleman at Lords, a fierce drive from Lord Harris caused him to dislocate the middle finger of his bowling hand. This injury caused him to miss the next six games, and whilst he would return in time for the first test, his effectiveness would be reduced. Palmer was not the same bowler that he had been and struggled, only taking five wickets across the three tests, whilst Edwin Evans, who had been rated the best cricketer in Australia in his younger days, was passed it at 37 and was one of the biggest disappointments of the tour. As the weather improved, the Australians were finally able to start producing some batting form. The first century of the tour was scored in a return match against a gentleman, this time at the Oval, where Sammy Jones' 151 trumped Grace's 148 in a high-scoring draw. Scott got in on the action with a century against Middlesex in a thrilling one-wicket win. The Australians had collapsed from 3 for 104 to 9 for 115, chasing 123, before Jack Blackham and Rowley Pope saw them home. Pope, who had played his only test in the second of the 1884-85 season, had travelled to England on his own accord, primarily to follow the Australian team around and had been asked to fill in during to the growing injury toll on the tour, something he would do on three other occasions. With another victory in the final tour match before the first test and the return to fitness of Spotheth, the Australians headed to the first match in Manchester with some confidence behind them. England selected a strong side for the match, although not all their first choice players had been available. Hornby, who were expected to captain, and Barnes were out due to a leg injury and side strain respectively. Their places were taken by Dick Barlow and Briggs, with Steele taking over as captain. Other big names such as Grace, Scott and Shrewsbury, Ulyett, Reid and Pete were all selected. The one debutant was 21-year-old George Lohman, who had led all first-class wicket-takers in 1885 and had another strong start to 1886. The Australians chose to leave out Evans and McGillwraith as the match commenced at midday on the 5th of July. Scott, who preferred to bat in the middle order, but felt burdened to take on the responsibilities of opening as well as captaining, walked out to commence the innings with Jones. In front of around 10,000 spectators, they faced the bowling of Pete and the new man Lohman. The two Australians batted with care, limiting their risk in their stroke play, although Scott was dropped by Barlow at slip on nine. The score reached 32 before a change in the bowling to Ulyet brought about an increased scoring rate, with Jones taking advantage of some wayward bowling. The 50 partnership was raised, but soon after the first wicket fell, as Barlow accepted the second capture opportunity off Scott from Ulyet, dismissing the Australian batsman for 21. Giffen joined Jones. Runs soon slowed to a trickle, including a period of 16 consecutive maidens, but the two batsmen held firm, taking the score to 69 without further loss at the lunch break. Almost immediately upon the player's return, Giffen lost his wicket, bowled by Steele for 33. Jarvis joined Jones, who brought up his individual 50 soon after, his first in Test cricket. At this point, the Australians were well on top, with runs coming freely. The hum was brought up after three, whilst the batsmen were quite comfortable with the bowling on offer, Jones taking 10 off one low over. This prompted Steele to turn to the bowling of Grace. Once again, Grace would claim the wicket of Jones, although this one would be much less controversial than the run out in 1882 test, trapping the Australian leg before before the devil's number of 87, with six boundaries. Bonner replaced him and immediately struck a boundary. The hopes of another world with innings from the big man were dashed soon after, as he was well caught for four. This brought Trumbull to the crease to join Jarvis with a score at four for 141. 
Through careful play, the two progressed the score to 181 before Trumbull was dismissed by Steele for 24. This wicket signalled the beginning of the collapse, with the Australians squandering their strong position, losing their last six wickets for only 24 runs. Jarvis was the seventh out for 45, falling to Ulyat, whilst Garrett became Lohman's maiden test wicket. Ulyat did the most of the damage, claiming three of the last six wickets to fall, to finish with four for the innings. The Australian score of 205 was considered a missed opportunity given their strong start. There was just under half an hour of play remaining in the day, as Grace and Scott commenced the English innings. Grace started well with a boundary, but was soon after out for eight, caught it slipped by Bonner off Spoffer for eight. Shrewsbury arrived and was almost dismissed in a carbon copy of Grace's dismissal first ball, but Bonner shelled the catch. The two English batsmen took the innings through to stumps without further loss, with 36 runs on the board. Spotheth and Bruce resumed the attack the next morning in front of 9,000 spectators. Spotheth bowled with high pace, with Jarvis standing well back as the keeper. Shrewsbury did the bulk of the scoring, hitting a couple of boundaries and taking the team score beyond 50 before a quick Yorker from Spotheth disturbed his leg stump, sending him back to the pavilion for 31. Reid came to the crease and immediately challenged the bowling, causing Bruce to be replaced by Giffen. However, it was the replacement of Spotheth with Garrett that would bring about the breakthrough, with Scotland steering his third ball to Trumbull at point with a score on 80. The English captain replaced him, helping to steer the score past 100 before falling victim to a smart catch at the wicket off Palmer. Reid continued unflustered, bringing up his 50 before falling just before lunch to the bowling of Garrett. He had made 51 with seven boundaries. Barlow and Ulyat took England through to lunch without further loss, with the score at 5 for 140. The game was finally balanced with a strong bowling performance there was still a chance for the Australians to gain a slender advantage. Bullitt attempted to rest the momentum with some big shots but fell for 17, bowled by Spotheth. His replacement Briggs could only muster a single before becoming the Demons' fourth victim, with the English now six down and trailing by 45 runs. This brought the debutante Lohman to the crease to join Barlow. He was nearly out for one but Palmer misjudged a catching chance at long on. Taking advantage of this life, Lohman batted with the freedom of youth hitting Spotheth for multiple boundaries and taking the score quickly past 200. This caused Spotheth to be replaced by Giffen, who managed to get the breakthrough just as the English passed the Australian score, bowling Lohman for a well-made 32. Palmer claimed the final two wickets to finish with three for the innings, but not before the score had been taken to 223. Barlow remained undefeated on 38 as the English took a slender lead. With just over an hour's play left, Jones and Scott once again opened the innings. The two took advantage of Lohman, who was tired from his batting effort, hitting 10 ones off one of his overs and causing him to be replaced by Barlow. The two Australians wiped off the deficit and were building a strong partnership before Jones was well caught in the boundary off the English captain for 12. This wicket brought about a collapse, with Giffen and Jarvis both falling for single figures off Barlow. Bonner joined his captain and was seeing the innings through to stumps before Grace was throwing the ball for the last over of the day. Bonner couldn't resist and attempted to hit the doctor out of the ground, but could only sky a catch to Barlow at mid-off. This brought about the close of play, with the Australians only 37 runs in front with six wickets in hand. The Australian captain had batted well for 36 not out, but would need strong commitment from his remaining batting partners to take the Australians to a winning position in the match. Trumbull joined Scott at the crease at the start of the third day, looking to develop a substantial partnership. Their stand only lasted 13 runs though, as Trumbull was splendidly caught at slip. Blackham held out for six overs, but his dismissal was immediately followed by Bruce, out first ball, tamely hitting a catch to mid-off. The Australians were now in a precarious position at 7 for 70, but their captain was resolute, still at the crease in the 40s. However, his resistance was finally ended at 47, when he was clean bowled by Barlow. The lead was only 55 of two wickets in hand, first Palmer, then Spotheth joined with Garrett to add another 50 runs to the total, with some big hitting from Spotheth that being particularly the highlight. The innings ended with Garrett being caught at long off, trying to clear the boundary, with a score at 123. Barlow was the standout bowler, finishing with 7 for 44 of 52 frugal overs. This left the English with a target of 106, a target they were expected to reach, although thoughts of the oval in 1882 kind of been far away from many of the players. The hero of that match, Spotheth, opened the bowling with Giffen, and Grace and Scotland once again dopened for the English. 
It was given to provide the early inroads on a wearing pitch and was able to get the ball to hold, leading to Grace being caught at mid-on, followed by Shrewsbury hitting a tame caught and bowled. Spotheth got in on the action, having new batsman Reid skying a catch to mid-off. This left the English at 3 for 24, with the Australians sensing an opportunity for another famous victory. However, Barlow joined with Scotland and arrested the Australian momentum. Despite some excellent Australian bowling and fielding, the two progressed the score past the halfway mark to the target with careful batting. This caused Scott to experiment, turning to Garrett and Palmer for the breakthrough. The latter managed to sneak past Scotland's resolute defences, bowling him for 20 with the score at 62. Scott, sensing the moment, brought back Spotheth at Palmer's end to try and press the opening. It was Garrett, however, who was able to create the chance, drawing the edge off the next batsman's deal. However, Bonner, not for the first time in the match, dropped the chance. This enabled the two English batsmen to take the score onto 90 and the brink of victory before Barlow fell to Spotheth, having scored an invaluable 30. Next man, Ulliott would fall to Garrett with the score's level, but the winning runs would be hit in the next over, a four-wicket win to the hosts. Barlow was the star of the match, with his 7-4 and crucial 30 in the second innings the key factor in the result. Despite the loss, the Australians had performed admirably in the first test, maintaining the high standards set by earlier teams. However, this would be the high watermark for the 1886 side, as disputes and injuries caused the results to worsen from this point on. The second test was scheduled to start at Lords under two weeks from the end of the first match, with the Australians squeezing three matches into that time, including a victory against Yorkshire. Both sides made one change to the test. England replaced their keeper, with Talcott taking over from piling, mainly due to his superior batting, whilst Evans replaced Bruce, who had made little impact in the previous test only scoring two runs and taking no wickets. As it was to turn out, Bruce's numbers would have been preferable to what Evans was able to produce. Steele won the toss and chose to bat, with the game commencing just before 12. Grayson Scotton opened once again for the English, this time facing Garrett and Evans. After a maiden to begin, England's first boundary came off Evans via misfield from Scott at point, a portent of things to come. Scotton was then missed by Giffen at slip, although the chance was a difficult one. Both batsmen took Evans to boundaries, leading to his replacement by Palmer. This had an immediate impact, with Grace edging the first ball to the keeper to fall for 18. Shrewsbury joined Scotton, but heavy showers forced the players from the ground for almost two hours. Upon the return of the players, Shrewsbury was missed by Evans at slip. The pitch was much more difficult following the rain, but the two batsmen played doggedly, denying the Australian bowling and protecting their wickets. Spotheth arrived at the crease for his first overs when the score had reached 45, but was unable to force a breakthrough. As the partnership approached 50, Giffen was tried and nearly dismissed Shrewsbury, but Jarvis missed the leg side stumping. Finally, at 77, Garrett defeated Scotland's defences, bowling him for a resolute 19. Reid joined Shrewsbury. Two batsmen progressed the score past 100 with little difficulty before Reid was unexpectedly out, caught at point off a rising ball from Giffen. Steele fell cheaply to Spotheth for five, leading the English at four for 119 with the match finally balanced. At this point, Barnes joined Shrewsbury. The set batsman soon after brought up his 50 just before five o'clock. The partnership developed mostly in singles, but held the bowling out despite the deteriorating nature of the pitch. Scott tried all his bowlers, but could not force a breakthrough. The 200 came up just before the close of play, with Shrewsbury entering the 90s on the last ball of the day. The English thus ended in a strong position of 4 for 202. 18,000 fans attended the second day, looking to see the home side press their advantage. They were rewarded first ball with Barnes clipping palm to the boundary. Shrewsbury profited from the same sort of shot off Spotheth, and would soon after bring up his century, his second in test, to tremendous cheering from the crowd. The score raced past 250, with Scott turning to Garrett and Giffen. This had little impact, with Barnes being particularly severe on Giffen, taking 13 from one of his overs and bringing up his own half-century. Soon after, however, a rising ball from Garrett caught the shoulder of his bat, with Palmer taking a simple catch, out for 58. He'd been part of a 161-run partnership with his fellow Knotts player Shrewsbury, and had put the game firmly on English terms. Next man, Barlow, was missed by Palmer at mid-on without scoring, where the return of Spoffers to the bowling crease saw Palmer claim the next chance offered, with Barlow out for 12.
The score by now was past 300. Williot hit a quick 19 before becoming Spotter's third victim, whilst wicketkeeper Tolcott fell for a second ball duck in the same over. Briggs also failed to trouble the scorers, becoming Trumbull's first wicket. Shrewsbury, who had brought up his 150, looked set to finish the innings undefeated, but an excellent bonnet catch at slip-off Trumbull finally ended his innings on 164. His epic had lasted nearly seven hours and included 16 boundaries, but he also benefited from sloppy Australian fielding, having been missed twice before he reached 50. The English total of 353 was imposing, but the pitch had played better than expected, giving the Australians some confidence in their response. Once again, Scott and Jones opened the batting. They handled the opening bowlers Barnes and Lohman comfortably, hitting a number of boundaries and bringing up 40 runs in only 35 minutes at the crease. Steele turned to himself and Briggs in place of the openers to almost immediate effect. Briggs managed to trap Scott LBW for 30 with the score at 45. The loss of their captain would initiate a collapse for the Australians. Five wickets were lost for only 22 runs. Bonner and Trumbull both fell for ducks, with Bonner going out in his usual style trying to hit the ball out of the ground. Only Jarvis could blame the pitch for his dismissal, being bowled by a ball that rolled along the ground. When Jones, who had watched the carnage at the other end, became Briggs' fourth victim, caught one-handed at point by Grace to 25, Australia collapsed to 6 for 67. Palmer and Blackham combined to take the score to 99, but when Blackham became Briggs' fifth victim, the end of the Australian innings came quickly, finishing at 121. Being 231 runs behind, the Australians had to follow on, but there still being 20 minutes of play left in the day. The Australian batting order was changed with Garrett, the non-out batsman from the first innings, opening with Palmer. However, this was not a success, with Garrett becoming another victim of Briggs just before the close of play as he was bowled for four. Trumbull saw Australia through to stumps without further loss, but the prospect of a heavy defeat was high. The Australians commenced the third day requiring 220 runs to make the English bat again. The non-out batsman started well, seeing off Briggs and taking the Australian score past 50. Soon after, they raised their 50 partnership, but the introduction of Barnes finally brought about a dismissal, with Trumbull caught behind for 20. Jones joined Palmer and developed another partnership, although slowly, given the high quality of the English bowling and fielding. Steele tried Briggs at the other end to where he'd taken all his wickets, and he showed himself to be just as effective, bringing about the dismissal of Jones, knocking his off stump out of the ground. From here, resistance collapsed from the Australians. Scott could only manage two, whilst Giffen scored one less. When Palmer was out for two short of his 50, caught at mid-off off Barlow, it was only a matter of time before the English claimed victory. Three of the last four wickets would fall to Briggs, who would finish the innings with 6 for 45 to go with his 5-4 in the first. Evans was the other wicket, being run out for a duck to complete a pair for the match. The Australian innings finished 126, leading to an immense innings and 160-run victory for the English. The only consolation for the Australians in defeat was their share of the gate, taking 80% of the earnings from the over 30,000 spectators that attended the match. The Australians too now began to descend into despair. Bonner was injured following the second test and would not play again on the tour. The disputes between the players intensified and Scott did not have the authority to settle them. Of the six games between the second and third tests, the Australians lost too heavily and drew the rest. The only shining light was Giffen, who took 42 wickets in those matches, including six bags of five or more. Other than him, there was little to suggest that the Australians were going to put in an improved performance when the third test rolled around to be played at the Oval. With Bonner out, Bruce returned to the side. McIlwraith, who had only had one score over 50 for the entire tour, was surprisingly giving a debut, with Jarvis left out of the 11. The English run changed following their impressive victory. Steele again won the toss and chose to bat. The form bowler Giffen commenced proceedings just after midday with Garrett at the other end. Scott and Grace were at the wicket for the English, with 11,000 spectators braving the gloomy weather. The Australian bowlers started tidily, with only six runs on the board after 16 overs. The pressure got to WG, nicking a ball from Garrett to Scott at slip. It was a simple chance, but setting the tone for the Australian's performance, the Australian captain couldn't hang on. This would prove to be a costly drop. Given a second chance, Grace chose to celebrate by lofting a ball from Garrett over the infield. He was then missed off a sharp caught and bowl chance from Giffen. 
Scoring still remained limited, with the 50 coming up just before lunch. Following the adjournments, Botheford's tried for the first time and managed to hit both batsmen on the gloves. However, he was unable to make the breakthrough as Grace, who had done the bulk of the scoring, brought up his 50. Soon after, he was missed for the third time, this time by Bruce at long off. Grace rubbed Sultan to the wound by hitting the next two balls from Spothers to the boundary. Scott rotated his bowlers, but all were punished by Grace, hitting multiple boundaries as he moved towards his century. He was missed on 93 by the debutant Milkil Wraith at slip, and soon after brought up his ton just before four, receiving a tremendous ovation from the crowd. When Lynch nunned down for 129, Trumbull was brought on for the first time to slow the scoring. He was partly successful, particularly against Scotton, who went over an hour without scoring. This could not be maintained, and soon after the scoring resumed, with the partnership heading past 150. Garrett returned to the crease and finally achieved the breakthrough, bowling Scotland for a disciplined 34. He had played the supporting role in the 170-run partnership with Grace and had done it well. There was no respite for the Australians as Shrewsbury joined with Grace to take the score past 200, whilst the doctor brought up his 150, his second such score in tests. He had reached 170, what would be his highest test score, before the Australians finally managed to have a catch stick, with Spothers finding his edge through to the keeper. He had hit 24 boundaries and batted for four and a half hours, putting the game fairly in England's favour. With just over an hour's play remaining, Reid joined Shrewsbury at two for 216. There was no ladder for the Australians, with both batsmen handling the bowling comfortably, with Spothers and Gitton both coming in for punishment. The two took the English to the close without further loss at two for 279. Heavy rain from the night before delayed the start of play. The Australians took advantage of the improved bowling conditions, with Shrewsbury failing to Trumbull soon after the commencement of play for 44. This opening brought about a collapse, with Trumbull claiming Barnes and Steele for single-figure scores either side of a rain delay. Garrett got in on the act by dismissing Barlow and Elliott cheaply, leaving the English at 7 for 320. Reid, who had just brought up his 50, was then joined by Briggs. Reid was then missed by Scott, who dropped a difficult running chance at mid-off. The two batsmen managed to get the English through to lunch without further loss. Following the break, the two batsmen put their foot on the accelerator. Briggs was particularly harsh, treating the bowls with disdain, particularly through the league side. They scored 56 runs in the half an hour following lunch, bringing up the 400. Reid was happy playing second fiddle as he progressed through the 70s and 80s, whilst Briggs brought up his half century with a cup for four. The two had put on 90 runs before they were finally separated, Briggs falling to Swathers for 44. Reid, joined by Talcott, progressed to within one big hit of a century before he was finally caught the long on boundary for an impressive 94. The English innings ended soon after, finishing on the imposing 434. Spothworth had claimed the last three wickets to finish with four, whilst Garrett and Trumbull both claimed three. The Australian innings that followed was a debacle. Jones was caught for two, skying a pull shot off Lohman, whilst Giffen was caught at point off Briggs with a score at 11. Palmer was out for 15, what would be the top score of the innings at 22, with Trumbull joining Scott at the wicket. The two took the score through to 34 before a sharp catch by the keeper ended the Australian's captain's innings. This signalled a sharp collapse, with Australia losing a further four wickets for only 15 runs. A small partnership was formed between Evans and Bruce, but when Bruce was out at 67, the innings would end only one run later. Compared to the 300 overs faced by the English, the Australian innings had only lasted one-fifth of that time, with Lohman and Briggs each bowling 30 overs unchanged. Lohman was the star. Having only taken one wicket across the first two tests, he demonstrated the skill he was known for in county cricket, taking an impressive 7 for 36. Briggs played an excellent supporting role with three, including superb caught and bowled off Blackham, jumping high in the air to claim a one-handed catch. Being over 300 runs in the lead, it was an easy decision to make the Australians follow on. Evans and McIlwraith opened for the Australians and managed to see through the nine overs to the close of play without loss at none for eight. The game recommenced on the Saturday with what felt like a fait accompli, with the Australians still 358 runs behind. The English were relentless with their line and lengths, with the pressure building to the point McIlwraith called for a second run that wasn't there, causing Evans to be run out by grace. McIlwraith soon joined his opening partner back in the pavilion, well caught behind off Briggs for three. Number three Jones fell for two, whilst the captain Scott skied a ball to Grace to be out for four.
with Lonan being the bowler on both occasions. The Australians were 4 for 30 and endangered not even passing their dismal first innings performance. However, Palmer, who joined Giffen at the crease, finally provided some resistance. They held out the bowling to the extent that the first English bowls other than Briggs or Lohman had to be tried for the match, first turning to Barlow and Barnes, followed by the captain bringing himself on. The two batsmen managed to bring up a 50-run partnership before Steele made the breakthrough, having Palmer stumped for 35. Trumbull joined Giffen and provided further resistance, allowing the score to be taken past 100. Lohman and Briggs returned to the bowling crease, and Trumbull only just survived, being dropped by Barlow. However, Briggs managed to get the last laugh, with Reid securing the next chance offered by Trumbull soon after the previous one. Trumbull was six out with a score at 120. Blackham came and went to five before Giffen was finally dismissed by a sharp court and bowl from Lohman. He had made 47 with five fours and had been the backbone of the innings, but once he was gone, the match concluded soon after, with Lohman claiming the final two wickets to fall, finishing with another five and 12 the match. The Australians had more than doubled their first inning score, finishing on 149. This still led to a massive loss by an innings and 217 runs, the most decisive result to this point in Test history. Despite their convincing losses in the Test matches, the Australians still remained a big draw and the tour would go on to be an overall financial success. There's still over a month of matches to go, with 13 played between the end of the third Test and the end of the tour in late September. The Australians didn't lose any of these, but most were draws impacted by rain. These matches allowed the Giffen to complete the double, scoring almost 1,500 runs and over 150 wickets for the tour, a magnificent effort and establishing him as the star Australian player, while his performances in the test didn't match these extraordinary first-class numbers. The tour would be the last for a number of Australian players. Palmer's test performances had not reached the high standards that he had established, although he almost completed the double of 1,000 runs and 100 wickets in the first-class matches. However, upon his return to Australia, he fractured his kneecap, limiting his effectiveness. He will continue in first-class cricket for another 10 years, but his test career was over, having taken 78 wickets in 17 matches. This is also the last time that English fans would see Spothers as an Australian player, having done so much to create the rivalry between the two sides. Most sadly, this was the end of the career of the captain, Tup Scott. Thrust into the captaincy, he had not shirked his responsibilities, playing in all but one of his team's matches, and stepping forward to open the batting when he much preferred to play in the middle order. However, his performance was reduced, and his inability to unite the side were a major reason why the Australians performed so poorly in the test matches. Having received a hammering from the Australian press, Scott decided to remain in England at the end of the tour to complete his medical studies. He would eventually return to Australia and settle in Scone, where he became the local mayor, but would never play first-class cricket again. Despite the way it ended, he was immensely proud of both scoring a test century and having captained his country. The loss of players such as Scott and Palmer were a big blow to the Australian game, particularly as the tour, profitable as it was, was still bemoaned in Australia for its mercenary nature. Local interest in games would decline, and the advent of a recession at home would also challenge the viability of these matches. However, the following Australian season will also see the rise of new talent who would help establish the next generation of Australian players and rebuild the public's belief in their side. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.